Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutskaya, and as ever, I'm your podcast host. We have returned from our hiatus with a mini-series dedicated to exploring and celebrating The House of Psychotic Women, the seminal book by Kayla Janice. What do you think? Go ahead and be honest, just tell me. You think I'm insane? Do you know these women wrestling in the green of blood? No! I disgust you! I'm sick on you! You hate me! But it's difficult, don't you understand? It is difficult! I didn't Published a decade ago now, its ripple effects can be felt on a whole generation of film fans, filmmakers, and critics, myself very much included. Kila Janice's book is many things, as is its author. It's a totem of film criticism, a comprehensive study of female neurosis on screen, a guide to horror films, and a memoir. Through its pages, Janice, who is an author, critic, film programmer, podcaster, publisher, producer, and director, investigates the figure of the psychotic women through exploitation and horror films. And it's through these films that she explores women on the verge, or in the midst of, a nervous breakdown. Women whose relationships have irrevocably damaged them. Women who scream and demand to be listened to. To celebrate its 10th anniversary, there is a UK-wide tour of film screenings and events with Kayla herself, presented by the lovely folk from Matchbook Cine. I'll leave the link to these in the show notes. And if you're in Glasgow next weekend, I'll be up there hosting a conversation with Kayla herself. Over the next five episodes of the series, I'll be talking to guests about the book, its influence, and some of the films featured in it. First up, I'm joined by podcaster and lecturer Mary Wilde and film writer Sophie Monks-Kaufman to really dig into the ideas of the book itself and why it remains peerless. If you enjoy this episode, do let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Anna B. Demented, very perfectly. <laughs> and you can support the podcast over on Patreon or by leaving us a review on Apple or Spotify Podcasts. And with all of that said... Please join me in the House of Psychotic Women. Mary, Sophie, thank you so much to both of you for for having this conversation with me i've genuinely been excited about it um and looking forward to it since you both agreed um to take part um i'm personally and this whole kind of idea for this this micro series is my own um ode or love letter to the work of kayla janice and my personal love language is making podcasts so here i am making a podcast um 
Before we dig into House of Psychotic Women and the book itself and its influence, I wanted to ask you to introduce yourselves. Um, give us a little bit of your, your own personal history with the book and your work, who you are. Sophie, do you want to start since it's your first time recording with me? Yes. So uh, my name is Sophie Montskelfman. I'm a writer primarily on film, but sort of oozing into other areas. I wrote a piece about having sex with a story for Cosmopolitan recently. And I myself am working on a book that is not a million miles away from House of Psychotic Women. And I have written a previous book about Wes Anderson. And, you know, like anyone in the creative industries in this day and age, uh, like we just have these portfolio careers and have done lots of many different things. Um, but in terms of my relationship to the book, I, I I was trying to remember exactly when it was in space and time that I first read it. And actually all I could really remember was just the the feeling of reading it and like the revelation that it was even possible for such an intimate book about film writing to exist. And like it, above and beyond it being about horror cinema, which it is in, in incredible detail, it also kind of feels like someone just searching for the words to describe something that's already happening in her head and that horror cinema is giving her the language to discover. And I just kind of like, was so thrilled to sort of realize that someone had written this extraordinary book that was like about what it was about, but it was also what it was about living inside her head. And for me, that's always the relationship I have had with art and with cinema. And I hadn't really thought it was necessarily possible to write a book like that because your entry point to the world are these like quite quite serious stiff scholarly writing where people kind of filter their perceptions through some, some sense of like yeah like neutrality and I was so excited to read this book um yeah so that was my discovery of it well first of all I want to say thank you for having me back on your podcast always an honor to be here and it's so nice to speak to both. So I am a lecturer on film and psychoanalysis. I created the projections lecture series at the Freud Museum in London. And through that, I sort of started podcasting as well. I uh, co-host the projections podcast and I contribute to Mike Munster's podcast, The Evolution of Horror. Um, and I suppose for me, uh, it was like a natural fit finding this book. Uh, I purchased my copy of House of Psychotic Women in 2017. After leafing through it at the library, I realized like this is really my wheelhouse because I'm interested in the representation of mental illness on screen. When I first purchased it, though, I only really engaged with the appendix, like the last part portion of the book, the compendium of female neurosis. And that was really just to inform my own research teaching at the Freud Museum. But the memoir portion um, kind of scared me initially. It was like an exposed raw nerve. And I initially I didn't initially have really the fortitude to read it. So I avoided it for a long time. I think it's I've tried to like psychoanalyze <laughs> why that is. I think I'm just a little bit, um, yeah, I suppose I'm a little bit fearful of oversharing. And uh, and when I saw the author doing that, I was a little bit, um, I suppose, yeah, I felt a little bit confronted. Mm -hmm. But then I eventually did have the strength to read it and I loved it. <laughs> 
It's so interesting to hear you both speak coming from very different perspectives. I feel like I sit somewhere in between the both of you. And my relationship with the book has certainly changed as um, I think as I grew as a person, to be honest, as I became, you know, a, a more functioning adult. And I remember very clearly being exposed to Kayla as a person and as a curator first, because I in my sort of obsessive watching of things, like I was obsessed with lists, I was obsessed with, you know, watching as much cinema as possible, and the quote unquote, the right kind of cinema. And I remember stumbling upon this documentary, uh, I think about 2009, 2010, and I was in, univer in university, I'd never heard of the job of a film programmer, I didn't understand how film festivals happened, they just occurred. There wasn't that many in Madrid where I was living at that time. So there were just sort of this thing that wasn't really a part of my film world or my film universe and this documentary which I know Kayla has kind of is not happy about existing but this was my entry point into her and it was her as a person producing and curating this horror festival and I had no idea this was a job I had no idea the work that it involved I had no idea about the kind of personalities that could be involved in it and I remember her name very clearly and sort of always had this had her as a pillar of in cinema culture before I even really knew what it was. And when I finally got my hands on the book and it's a, it's a tome, like it is physically impressive as well as a publication. Uh, I remember reading it and kind of doing the same thing, going through the index first as a way of let's see how many of these I have seen, how many of these I've got still got to see. And then I started actually reading the text itself. And I don't think I fully appreciated the, the intimacy of the writing and the the autobiographical part i was really centered on reading through the the analysis and the horror analysis and the and the film history in the writing and then when i reread it more recently the thing that that stood out so strongly to me was actually the the audacity of the writing for lack of a better word the fact that it was so personal and so intimate and so interwoven with the themes of the films that she's talking it, I knew it was ahead of its time, but considering how my own writing or my own thinking about cinema has uh, evolved and projects I've done and things and people that have, you know, worked through their own life through and their relationship with art and cinema and horror in particular, I just cannot believe that this was written 10 years ago. Well, it's like she's mirroring what horror movies do for audiences and providing mm -hmm. this, like, like very visceral not quite catharsis but like this very visceral telling of a story whereas the safe thing to do is to try and pretend that you yourself are this like perfect disembodied creature mm -hmm. who's never suffered never felt lonely never worried you've been insane she was like nope I felt all of those things and the reason that you love horror films and you relate to those or you connect with those is like that reason is going to be in the very DNA of the book and that's why I thought it was so genius just kind of like melting away the barriers both between the way that she herself wrote and the form that she was writing about, but like very, very brave to do that. And can we talk a little bit about what this book, kind of why it stands out so much against other forms of film criticism? And Sophie, you kind of alluded to this, you know, to this idea of the disembodied, um, perfect audience member. And I think a, a lot of the, the things that have always rubbed me the wrong way about film criticism is that there seems to be a tradition of, you know, very this is perfect, this is good, this is bad. But this book kind of completely 
circumvents all of that to create a very a very smart, very erudite form of film criticism that is also deeply personal. Yeah. I mean, I I am... Um... I, I don't want to just hug because I realised I just answered the last question. Mary, did, did you have any thoughts on that subject? Well, yeah, I suppose um, what really strikes me is that, um, you know, she writes her memoir in this brutal honesty, uh, this voice that is so frank. She talks about her past and her personality in very, very straightforward terms. And even if you know, that doesn't sometimes present her in a glowing light. Um, this is the kind of anti-self-help book in a way. You know, she's helping herself by kind of processing through her traumas and relating that to horror cinema. But Kula doesn't claim to have found the solution to psychological problems. You know, she never claims to be the guru on the mountaintop. She's in the trenches with us as mm. readers. So she's leaning on her love of genre film to process trauma, really. A lot of the book is really just like listing out trauma responses and um, and how this also kind of coalesces or converges with the spirit of what she's seeing in, ho in horror cinema. And this is very relatable to a lot of readers, I think. This is what really makes it different to other types of film criticism, because it is so subjectivized. There's not taking this distanced approach. Yes, and it, 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 a lot of arts criticism in general, the writer positions themselves as some kind of like omniscient authority above the subject matter. She's just like, no, I'm part of the subject matter. This is this is like how I process uh, my like like unmanageable feelings and traumas and passions. Like I I, I see it in the, in in the films, and so there's no like that hierarchy. And, and yeah, Anna, you you kind of mentioned because you know I guess we both have you know work, worked in, a, in this mm. similar field of, of writing a lot of film criticism and um you know has your has has your own type of writing become more daring as you've gone along for example you know like when you enter mm -hmm. when we entered the industry like for me it was about 10 years ago um like you kind of mimic to a certain point what's out there or at least you feel like you kind of have to and yeah what was out there was yeah like kind of like very sort of you know like intellect driven and in the last 10 years I feel like there's so much more like identification going on and I just yeah I'd be curious to know how you're writing you feel your writing has changed in that period of time since the book was published I think I entered the industry roughly about 10 years ago as well um but kind of have reached writing in the last handful of years I'm gonna say roughly about five uh either through my programming and then the, really in the last couple of years focusing a lot more deciding to specifically to focus a lot more on writing and what I will say is that what I've noticed and then deliberately started trying to work on a lot more is and I always kept Kayla's book in the back of my head and always had it sort of in a position of, of visibility on my bookshelf that is right by where I work at my desk. Because there, those figures of authority that I always saw and that as, as you're perfectly right, Sophie, when we first started, we kind of look at the position, the, the figures of authority and we say, Oh, this is what I guess I'm supposed to be like in order to reach those levels of success. And that applies to any type of avenue, right? Including writing. And the thing that I was obsessed with was 
that I kind of recognize myself in, in, in Kayla's writing is this obsessive desire to just see as much as possible. That the fact that if I can accumulate enough knowledge, I would be good enough. And it's the accumulation part that I kind of shed because as I've written, um, as I've written more and as I've seen more and I've kind of become much more secure in my own position or, or things or thoughts about film and about criticism. The thing that I'm most interested is in not whether it's quote unquote good or bad is why is it interesting? Is it interesting? And how does, is it felt? You know, there, I'm much more interested in critics or in writers or broadcasters who explain to me why a film, how a film made them feel and whether, you know, even if it's, they didn't personally like it, which is fair enough and kind of the most irrelevant thing for me. What would those feelings kind of work for someone else or what sort of feelings they would elicit in order for someone else to decide whether they want to engage in that or not? Because this kind of very strict academic, good, evil or kind of bad or or good kind of dichotomy just never seemed like enough. It never seemed like I could win at that. And it was also so much more interesting to hear and read people who were engaging with film and, and creating criticism that felt authored in a way. Like I can, I feel like even though I, I don't, I would, I know I'm don't know Kayla that well personally, reading her book, you're seeing and getting to know so much of her. So you completely understand where she's coming from when she's engaging with film. And I feel like that's also been very important. The more stuff I've done around film criticism, be that in audio, written form, I felt the need to make it very clear where I was coming from. The fact that whether I liked it or not is actually the most irrelevant part of my experience of a film. It's what it meant and what it surfaced that felt like the most important thing. And I've been thinking a lot. I mean, obviously I think a lot about horror in general, but when I was writing my, uh, my book last year, it also felt very, I kept thinking about House of Psychotic Women, even though that book is not about horror, deliberately not about horror at all. The one that I'm working on now is so much more thinking about why and how we experience horror films. And a lot of that comes from the, it, you know, my experiences as a person and also my experiences of the industry. And this thing that I think I've been thinking about a lot because I've been at this question endlessly, literally almost every single time that I meet a new person who doesn't know me and we end up talking about horror movies. And this is the key question in the book that I'm working on now is like, you know, what's wrong with you? that you like this stuff oh my god that's so annoying i'm so annoyed instantly on your behalf <laughs> but it's deeply annoying but i think it's also very telling and i think that question even though it's not ex explicitly asked in kayla's book kind of permeates it because she's almost trying to understand not explain understand why this particular set of films speak to her so intensely. And I was wondering kind of what are your thoughts about the actual choices that she makes, the type of film, you know, exploitation cinema, horror cinema, and also select kind of films that sit in between the art house and the horror. I mean, um, if I may um, go first, I, I find it really interesting how, Really, it's um, she's what she's charting is at once a kind of definition of psychotic mm. that is is really important to actually touch on momentarily, if I may, because yes. my understanding is that you know when we're talking about psychosis, this is a diagnostic category that refers to you know a disconnect from 
a shared reality. Mm. So example of that, like schizophrenia, hearing voices, hallucinating, etc. But the concept of the psychotic women, and I think what Kirla is more interested in really, um, is something that it's a concept that conjures up a specific image of someone unhinged, mm-hmm. you know, like transgressing the boundaries of polite society, a woman who's sort of invaded by an unknown, like dark force. And there's a strange, even erotic dimension to her condition, like an instinctual drive that really like animates her body in wild ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, you know, reading the book, uh, and and actually, once I kind of got over my my apprehension, mm-hmm. whatever, with with the memoir portion, and I really engaged with it, um, I realized that actually um, I don't really have a problem with the kind of mad woman concept of what she's really trying to 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 figure in the book, because I think that she's ar- argued in such a way that she, I anyway was convinced that the psychotic woman. Um, serves a function, a positive function to express something beyond the realm of logic and rationality. Like there are modern pressures now for Mm. women to be super accomplished and controlled. But the psychotic element is like a reprieve from being a girl boss all the time. Mm -hmm. And I see the potential here for like a liberation and freedom and a potential for huge creative power, which I think she really tapped into my understanding having listened to her interviews of how she initially like came about writing the book. And so the way that she structured it, um, you know, going through like a spectrum of titles, all kinds of different titles, uh, you know, everything that she talks about in the book um, and how she relates that to her own very fraught, you know, personal history, her own traumas, it, it's not really something that she objectively tries to prove, but somehow like alchemically through the process of discussing these things and being very open about her own life, that ends up becoming very prominent in the book and it mm-hmm. becomes the spirit of the book for me. Right. Um, also, I'm very interested, Mary, if you d- discovered what your inhibition was for, read- for reading the memoir part of it. <laughs> I think it's just... Um, Maybe it was like a personal thing that I wasn't prepared at that stage yet to confront my own motivations for watching horror films. You know, I know I, I know I enjoy them and I watch them all the time. And, and I have done since I was a kid. I was never scared of like the horror section of the video store. I was always there. But um, I think maybe when I was still in the phase of avoiding the memoir, I didn't really want to look more deeply at my own abyss so I was scared that if I read her memoir it was going to trigger something awful but it didn't at all like it it just confirmed something really positive about the cathartic Mm -hmm. potential of horror that's all (laughs) that's kind of mirroring a lot of the things she describes Mm -hmm. in the introduction because first off she makes this bold proposition that all women are crazy yeah Um, but like (laughs) that she's going to sympathize with that Mm -hmm. you know because why why wouldn't why wouldn't we considering like the century the centuries old depression um that we're only beginning to crawl free of um but then yeah she the the way she described watching a lot of these films is that she was scared to that they reopened wounds mm. and so you do have that tension in the book where you feel like maybe this course is like not not exactly re-traumatizing but in that direction but then also there is some great liberation um and 
and the release of all these in, internalized feelings. And something she was saying to me in my interview earlier is uh, like one of her biggest fears that is in the book and therefore she draws on a lot of heroines who also have this fear is the, the fear of being labeled insane because then mm. you have your agency stripped from you. She's saying, you know, when you get admitted to a psychiatric ward, they literally take away your ID. You don't have an identity and you don't have agency. Um, and, you know, like, but insanity is, is is a social construct and actually these these films that she's chosen they provide a container where that insanity is an entirely is rendered entirely coherent like it, like who would not respond in this way to these sets of circumstances like you know the violence visited on these people that lay like, the circumstances of their lives so I, yeah like to speak to the question you asked Anna about the curating mm-hmm. it in a way it is it's kind of like rendering legible what these these heroines these scream queens who could just be seen as like these pastiche figures you know they make in the context of the book and the way she presents them they make just total sense yeah and it's really i mean there's there's several things that you make me want to ask and i'll get to the main one in a bit but the thing that i really am responding to from both the book this time and from what you're just saying sophie is that the whole label and there's multiple labels we can use you know there's a psychotic woman there's a crazy woman mad woman insane all of these hysterical it all goes back to the same thing but it is so categorical and it is so catch-all every single time the term is used and i think one of the real strengths for me in the book is how it breaks apart it's like okay so what exactly do we mean when we mean a psychotic woman and by breaking everything down even you know through the films and through her own memoir it's breaking down the different elements that kind of the gradually and the gradually you start uh breaking down and suddenly you're labeled insane and everything is taken away and the crawling back and i think this is a it's a line that stuck with me from Prozac Nation, which is the Elizabeth Wurzel, very influential 90s memoir about being uh, depressed and being young. And she always said this thing that she gradually and suddenly fell into her depression and gradually but suddenly clawed her way back out of it. And you never really talk about the clawing back out. It's always the descent that is discussed, but it is so uniform. It's almost like, oh, suddenly she's crazy. And everything she's done before and everything she's doing now is by definition going to be nonsensical or doesn't or does not matter because she is insane. Which is a kind of roundabout way to asking both of you, kind of how do you think the mad woman or the psychotic woman is presented off uh, presented in the book? And kind of did the book in any way kind of challenge your own ideas of how uh, the mad woman is represented in in art, in cinema, horror cinema. I'm making it as general, make it as general or as specific as you wish. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's worth flagging that you know there are now two iterations of the book. There's the one mm-hmm. that was originally released, and now there's been this reissue, which yes. contains like is it hundred more titles? Mm-hmm. Um, and she, yeah, she's just saying it's kind of interesting. You know, in the last ten years, there've been as many films topic released as in the previous 40 50 years of film that she was drawing upon to write the book in the initial instance and that there have been many more films by women in the last 10 years as well and so yeah the book is interesting because it definitely it doesn't it, it's not like this activist home that's trying to promote awareness of mental health and correct terminology and, mm. and such like and it does have a very strong exploitation leaning in, in certain of the titles that it uses 
in a way maybe it just kind of made me feel like <laughs> I mean, if you're really in the in the in the trenches of like a bad psychological episode you really don't care what terms people use and like how people uh, understand you and um you know just just like it's that you're looking for just that raw recognition where wherever it it comes by like I think I was thinking back to when I first read it um I think I was just so gripped by how individual the story was so I think if there is any sort of activism element or like progressive element it's the fact that it's like yeah I, I guess maybe socially our temptation is to to say that if someone has a psychological problem or they're insane or whatever label we're using like you kind of group them all together her, her like her story was so distinct so immediate so hers and the way that she chosen to express it and explore it it was like so hers so maybe it didn't so much change or challenge my perception of psychotic women it just made me realize like you can tell a story about anything I mean if you've got the if you if you've got the boldness if you've got the audacity if you've got mm. the stamina to push through you can tell a story about anything no matter how to be like no matter how revealing yeah I agree with that and I think you know looking back on how the book really sort of educated me in a sense on things that I was taking for granted in terms of this concept of the psychotic woman and it's and also the evolution of this trope in in genre cinema you know I think she very um masterfully you know charts how initially um the psychotic woman started out in very crude shades and forms you know women going berserk mm. frantically frantically breaking from convention and sometimes the psychotic women were presented presented as cautionary tales you know shown in tragic light for what happens when we dispense with traditional patriarchal norms or as in as as we say in psychoanalysis the phallocentric order <laughs> so um in particular you know i'm thinking of like straight jacket repulsion black narcissist let's scare jessica to death the entity um i would throw fatal attraction in there mm -hmm. <laughs> um but the concept has evolved you know in more recent times and certainly since the book has been out um, from 10 years ago, it, 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 I think that I'm seeing the psychotic woman as certainly, you know, um, and I say this with utmost love of an affection, you know, crazy, mm -hmm. <laughs> but also unchained through the process of acting out. You know, there's a paradox of finding strength and power in madness and vulnerability. So now I'm thinking of like starry eyes, mm -hmm. um, raw, Revenge, Midsummer, Censor, mm -hmm. and my all-time favorite, Black Swan. I don't know if you can see my poster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I would answer that. Mm. Yeah, I like the idea of, like, un like being unchained and mm. unchained from the fellow-centric order. And this is not remotely a psychotic women title, but um, I watched and I'm reading the book Women Talking, which mm -hmm. is incredible because mm. it's just, it's it's a it's the whole conceit is this is a space for the female imagination and yeah like you know the the psychotic women in vogue commas are not as seen through the male eyes yeah she is like maybe this fetish object she's this pitiable object but you take that male gaze away she can be anything you want her to be mm -hmm. and it's she mentions in the book at one point kind of the the construction of the the female realm you know of these and i think that applies to both 
her as a as an audience member as a watcher and also to us when we're reading this we are even if we haven't seen the films that she's talking about you know the descriptions the detail the themes that emerge from them we are seeing them kind of from or taking them in from our point of view and kind of when i remember the feeling of reading this book is that she is creating essentially a, a cinematic universe that feels inherently female because it's it's being communicated through her eyes and through her vision. I almost don't care about who made them. Any of the, you know, production notes or details about kind of the people involved in the actual makings of the film take such a backseat in my experience of the book. And I was wondering kind of what you make of the... um what do you think are outside of the memoir aspect, outside of the um the liberation of the the psychotic woman or the mad woman figure, kind of what do you think are some of the key ideas that surface in the book for you? Mary? Well, um for me, you know, obviously psychoanalytically minded, I'm mm. very um it really strikes me the emphasis that she puts on her formative years you know this is absolutely essential mm -hmm. as um, in her methodology and it makes it so different to other books you know and it's worth kind of just mentioning some of the top line stuff that she she yeah. mentions you know witnessing the rape of her mother which then is sort of like question what is was this really something that happened was this a memory was this co confabulation mm -hmm. you know that's the term that comes in the book uh, the recurring dream of the man with green eyes, which obviously was, you know, something that she picked up from Eugenio's Mar Eugenio Martin's Horror Express from 1972. The fraught relationships with her two dads, identification with her stepsister Karen, becoming a juvenile delinquent, um, her exorcism. I mean, you know, that's really, that's quite something. Mm. She goes into detail about self-harm, living in group homes, foster homes, her presence in the punk scene in Canada, um, contracting an STI, breakdown of her marriage, troubled romantic relationships after that. So it's so, it's so important to kind of reiterate that she is essentially chronicling a series of trauma responses, you know, um, that have really kind of emerged from a dysfunctional family um, setup, really. And she's very clear about that. Um, but it also charts how Kirla created meaningful work in film. Hmm. And this is so central, how she's sort of like juxtaposing the listing out of these trauma responses alongside reviewing these films, but also um, talking about how she came to work in the film industry, you know, working in video stores, programming films, writing reviews, founding Cine Muerte, the film festival, and the way that the horror genre helps her to articulate her own feelings in relation to her trauma, you know? And I think this is absolutely essential. It, it, it changes the, the, the very nature of the book. Um, it's no longer just this objective compendium uh, that you can leave through dispassionately. Now you're kind of on a on a much deeper emotional level level with the author. Yes, I I mean I was struck, Mary, just listening to you. Now I was like, is there something wrong with my brain? Because yeah, that is what the story is about. But somehow, because it's woven around cinema and like specific tropes that one experiences in the brain. 
I kind of like for some reason I just it wasn't like I didn't notice all those things happened in her life I, I guess I just got distracted by the like core core emotions um so yeah like I guess when I when I read it I, I think about I guess themes like you know the, the idea of being a delusional person in the world mm. and what does that do to your inherent need to ex- express yourself and be understood and be recognized and like where all that goes because one thing I love about the book is is yeah like that that they're just like so, like it's like raw emotion woven into both a memoir and a and a, and a you know like a, a, a film film curation and yeah it's just like but these emotions like they don't have a home because I guess I mean I am not the expert on psychoanalytic theory here but I guess in the ideal situation if you have good bonds of people that gets expressed and there's like a mm-hmm. channel but if you're like if you if you are too delusional to be able to have those relationships like what happens to all yeah. those mm. emotions and the desire for the love and to be loved and uh these these primal things like where do they go and in a way like for me that's a really big theme of the book like the sort of like these these throbbing primal feelings and sensations that sort of find these expressions wherever they can because they desperately need to somehow Mm. I think I mean it's it's beautifully put Sophie and it it really surfaced one of the things that really struck me the second time reading it because my folk my own focus on the things that I remember from the book the things that I focused on uh first of all just the the things that stand out from it to either of us um are so different and they all exist in the same text it's like it's such a chameleonic (laughs) piece of work and the thing that really stood out to me this time around was kind of the the fluidity of memory and I think this is in all good memoirs in memoirs that are inherently kind of self-aware and understand that we have a flawed memory and that it is liquid and the best you can do is try to is try to remember as accurately as possible and here she's remembering feelings which is even more difficult and there is so much interplay between the things she remembers very acutely feeling and experiencing and then going back and realizing that, you know, the man with green eyes is a good example. She saw that film. She writes about seeing that film on a black and white television. So the green eyes was completely her own mind kind of um, adding information. Um, and that's like a very simple example of things that happen several times throughout the book. It's like, did this really happen? I mean, it did happen because I felt it that way. And I definitely remember feeling it. And that, kind of that investigation of memory really stood out to me and also the the choice memories that become hauntings which is where kind of it becomes more linked with the with the choice of horror of horror films that she writes about and with horror in particular kind of there's a reason why I find it really interesting to talk about kind of people's relationship with horror as a genre in particular kind of because there's always seminal films or pieces of work that become that kind of haunt us for better or worse and they kind of become ingrained in our brains and and they grow into something else that is often very far removed from the thing itself um and i was wondering kind of how do you think with that in mind kind of what do you think about even this format of autobiography or kind of auto investigation through cinema it's a corrective to so much that I think is wrong in journalism. I 
I go off, Sophie, I, please. I, I, I did a journalism master's mm-hmm. at City University, which is a revered institution, and I will never forget the the day that a journalism lecturer just said, "I have the word I has no place in your copy. Like you strip yourself out." There's this there's this real sneering feeling that it was very indulgent to put yourself in the piece and you must strip yourself away but I could not disagree more I think like you were touching on earlier Anna it's almost like you're that's your due diligence to put yourself in there so that your readers can see where you're coming from and decide if they're coming from the same place if they're coming from somewhere else to do the opposite to strip yourself out to position yourself as some sort of overarching authority that I think is like very um arrogant it's very patriarchal and it's it's yeah it's like it's uh, something I feel so against that I've entirely forgotten your question (laughs) the question was um very broadly kind of what do you think about the the format that the book I think pioneers of kind of autobiography via art via cinema yes 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 that is the way forward and it's also because it's it's female it's Mm. looked down upon yes um and it, it's also underestimated, I think, again, that patriarchal view of how writing should be w- would frame something like this as like a glorified diary entry mm. and attempt to negate the extraordinary rigorous skill and labor that's gone into crafting these different layers and levels so that it works in such a way that three of us are describing reading things, reading a book and that worked for us in such different ways. Like, I think we need to develop the the tools and the language through like really celebrating uh, like cinema as autobiography. And again, distinguishing Mm. it from, because there are certainly some hacks out there who like don't have this kind of skill and will just like word vomit how they feel onto the page and call that criticism. And that's not the same as this book. Um, I mean, this this book is incredibly rigorous. It's incredibly painstaking. It's uh, yeah, and it, it's you know is a gold standard for I think cinema as autobiography. Yeah, I highly agree with what you've just said here. Um, it it's so easy to assume that because she's talking about personal experiences and because she is speaking in a kind of almost an like, intimate language, um, it's easy to assume that it's just um, you know just yeah like sort of uh burying her soul on the page is something it's something so you know actually psychotic woman vibes mm. you know like she's just she's just like splattering all these emotions onto a page and she's like slapping a, a title on it and it's a book and it's that is you know it would be unfortunate if people were to view it that way because actually um it is it, it takes such a courageous mindset first of all to decide to look at your own personal history in such a diligent way the way that she has and in such a way that she captures the spirit of the moment without dwelling and sort of for the for the for the book you know to have the to, to have at the heart of it this wonderful rhythm and pace where you feel the movement you feel her kind of charted through her life so there's a huge skill in doing that, first of all, not to mention bravery and, and, and the willingness to confront those things and not do so in purely a positive light, like really be raw and honest. But for, for the way that she then um, really, it's just spellbinding to me, you know, the way that she ends up pairing this, like juxtaposing this um, with things that 
patterns and observations that she charts in movies and find similarities and find where things fit together like a puzzle. Like she's a collage artist, you know, mm, this is, I love that. Yes. you know, she's a collage artist. Like she, she, it, it, this, this is a, this, she's like an auteur. She's doing the same thing as, um, you know, it's the same kind of process of finding something that you're obsessed with, you're preoccupied with and seeing how it all fits together to tell mm. a compelling narrative. Mm. And this is a, it's a work of art. It's a, it's a really a masterwork. So it's highly, you know, highly recommended to anyone who really hasn't read it yet picked it up yet it's also that i mean it's an incredible work of editing because to create those that collage but in a way that it flows so seamlessly exactly like not anyone can just do that and i I wanted to to use that as a jumping on point to ask you both kind of what do you think of the actual writing like the language the editing that you just brought up Sophie kind of I think you know we we've spoken a lot about the the themes and the the memoir aspect of it but what about the craft itself it's beautiful it's um it's it's very precise I would say it's very spare it's not ornate or flowery it just says exactly what it needs to you but there are moments that are almost like crescendos or purple passages where mm. ooh, this like meticulously grounded description and theory will suddenly come together in a way that is just like very very satisfying and quite moving and beautiful to read yeah i agree kind of quite punchy at, at, at times as well like little bombshells are dropped but what really stood out for me and mm-hmm. her some of her writing decisions were um I, I started to think this was on upon my second reading of it. Um, <laughs> I noticed some interesting, like quirky little choices that she made, mm-hmm. such as um, the fact that she decided to change the names of her foster sisters. You know, when she was living with this lady, Edna, mm-hmm. who rescued her from like the, the troubled teen center or whatever. Well, her foster sisters, there's even a picture of them in Mexico, if you recall. Mm -hmm. And the caption says, you know, list the names of of herself and the the foster sisters. And she's referring to them in the book as Tootie, Natalie, and Blair. Now, this might be lost on you guys if you're not North American. I'm I'm actually Canadian. I'm from Montreal. Um, And she she refers to her foster mother as Edna. All of these names, Tootie, Natalie, Blair, and Edna, are character names from the 1980s American sitcom Facts of Life. The only one missing is is Joe. She's Mm. this other like wayward girl. And I think she's casting herself as Joe. Because as soon as I saw that, I'm like, that's the Facts of Life. What is she doing here? And she never refers to this little, very obscure, if you're not North American, you would not pick pick up on this. Mm. Um, but it's, it's such an obscure little choice that never gets justified. And then I'm, I'm left thinking what other little quirky things are hidden in, in this text that have, you know, that I haven't noticed. There's probably a few other little stylistic choices like that. Mm. And, um, and I, that makes me look at her as 
quite being quite mysterious, you know, and how she doesn't reveal everything. There's they're they're just little Easter eggs, and if you happen to spot them, you spot them, kind of mm. thing. And I like that. Well, you you spotted the hell out of the Easter egg. <laughs> that is a deep cut. Yeah, oh, were you were you aware? Of Absolutely deep not. I was like, but you know what? Mary would do this. Mary would spot <laughs> the Canadian Easter eggs that are there, just in plain sight, but only for fellow Canadians to see. <laughs> Um, I just think like it is I mean to echo a lot of what you said even earlier Sophie kind of the actual process of writing film criticism and the process of writing memoir two very different types of approaches to writing right kind of almost categorically opposed because of this this idea that you know I was told the same in journalism school it's like there's you know you have to be objective there's like this obsession with objectivity that I just found so you know, for lack of a better word, kind of completely uninteresting. Like I would was drawn for to journalists or or commentators who put themselves in the story and I knew exactly who they were, so I, I was engaged with them as much as with the thing that they were covering or writing about. And there's something so very matter of fact in the way that she writes that because of the subject matter, like the more extreme or the more um traumatic the situation that she's describing, it reads like, oh, this has been polished. This is not, this is about emotions, but it's not overly emotional. It's very clean writing and it feels like it has been, you know, polished and, and gotten to a place where she's able to write about things that were very hurtful or or deeply um searing at the time but now with distance and with the through the films as well and through the iterations of editing and of of um of writing they seem to have come to a place where they are they are honest but they're not exposing herself too much and i don't know if that makes sense but it came through to me you know you get to know her and understand where where she's coming from but at no point does the book ever i think try to tell us it's like oh this is everything there is to know about me because i think that would be exposing herself too much well that's something you have to be extremely careful about in this form again is like mm. your boundaries and um it's 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 hard to foresee in the moment of writing like quite how consequential it will be to mm. put this thing out into the world. Um, one thing she was saying earlier is she was like, um, yeah, like I'm a mentally ill person, but I'm scared of other mentally ill people. And now they're all coming to me um, because like she's, you know, she's written mm. this kind of like clar- clarion cool. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's such a tricky, I think this is the trickiest wicket. Like I can dismiss notions of this type of writing being self-indulgent, but I think the thing I haven't fully understood or, grappled with is like like what it means for your boundaries as as a person to to share these things on the page and I'm gonna throw the question that you asked me earlier Sophie back at you kind of how Mm -hmm. you know this reading this book thinking about it this conversation we're having your conversation with with Kayla herself how do you feel like this kind of writing and this this finding a boundary in your writing has influenced you as a film critic and as a for the project that you're working on now oof 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 the project i'm working on now yeah like i mean i'm existentially terrified 
um, I had a meeting with my agent on Tuesday and um, the stage we're at now is that she's gonna on the 7th of November she's gonna start trying to sell it to publishers mm. and therefore in my mind I suddenly realized this isn't just a thing that I'm sitting in my room writing this is the thing that other people are gonna read even if it's just the publisher she's sending it to mm. and I was like I've wasted my life I've made so many stupid decisions people who know how to live don't write about living they just go out there and, and live and um I'm it's not like my book this is the thing if you decide to write in a quite raw way this isn't like a sort of girl boss PR for SMK that's like great for my brand hmm. um you know this this is confiding to my human frailties my sorrows my you know it's like um and yeah so I I had a bit of a sort of like existential scare there that hasn't fully left me but I did process it sufficient to no longer regret all my life choices leading up to this moment and um, this was with a little help from my friend shared with me an extract from Stephen King's memoir on writing Mm. and this is like this chapter where he's sort of talking about where he's going to put his desk in the room and in the end he decides he's going to put it in the corner because he concludes that uh like art is there to support life not the other way around you know and I think just throughout history you've seen a lot of artists and writers who become absolutely defined by the thing they're working on and then their life and their work just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of being this lonely artist like polishing their work in a room I just don't want to live like that and I think um like I I think really the the only way around that is to yeah to like what you decide to put in the book is one Mm. thing there's got to be so much else to your life that you never tell us all like your private life like that has to exist somewhere somehow um and yeah I just hope that that Kiela has that for herself I hope she has that too and I I hope that the feeling that I have about the book is is correct in that regard, that this is this is what she's choosing to present through this medium, but it is absolutely not the full picture. And to be honest, I don't even believe that we can ever fully, truly know the entirety of a person. We can only know the bits of them that they're choosing to show us um, and in that particular moment of their life, because we all change as people at different points of our life um but i did also kind of want to talk to you about you know a lot of the we mentioned kind of talked a little bit about horror and expectation cinema which is the core um subject of this book on one hand has the way that she writes and experiences horror cinema influenced your own approach or your own views on horror as a genre Mary, do you want to kick off? Yeah, you're nodding. You're nodding <laughs> yeah, enthusiastically. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I picked this book up, as I said initially, mm. just to pick up some ideas. I needed. I was really looking to watch films that um, I could potentially, you know, teach, um, and I knew I had this specific interest. It, it it was hugely influential to me, making me aware of titles I had not even heard of before. I discovered so many films. Really, my my two favorite that I'm crediting her to and have completely blown my mind mm. are, and I just also love her analysis of of them. Like the analysis passages of these two titles in the book are actually sublime. Are um, 
it's actually the short film cutting moments mm-hmm. about the lady who like disfigures her mouth and uh venus drowning um and I had not come across these titles before prior to reading her book. I, I viewed them on, you know, kind of her recommendation and, uh, and it, it was sort of like mind blowing and sort of ended up discovering more cinema. Like it was just a don- domino effect of discovering more and more titles that sort of like sat alongside these other ones that had really intrigued me because they're so weird and they're so unusual but so philosophically interesting, like little thought experiments. Mm. And uh, yeah, so that's been just hugely influential for me. Um, And I also really just love the idea how she talks about how she works quite well as um, like a solitary person. Mm. I I heard her, I remember hearing an interview with her um, during the first lockdown of the COVID pandemic and you know, she said, um, I'm really lucky because, you know, the nature of my work means that I can continue to work, but now I don't have the pressures of socializing. Like she's like, I like going to film festivals, mm-hmm. but really that's about it. I kind of work alone mm-hmm. in a solitary way. And her whole attitude towards kind of being quite introverted and solitary as a person also I felt validated kind of by that approach because I am like that as well. I'm quite shy, really. Um like socially and um I, I like to mostly spend time alone um and so it's just kind of nice to know that other people work in this way so it was, it was sort of validating mm. confirming the the film that I, I it helped me discover I, I let's scare Jessica to death I oh, God, I remember yeah. watching that film and just it's just for, it's really beautiful like the, the 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 way that it's shot and the the settings that you know as as with many films you know like it's, it's kind of this woman is, mm. is taken to convalesce in this fairly isolated setting but it's like a stunning house and just the level of performance from Zora Lampert as uh, the titular Jessica being scared to death is like just captivating um so yeah so that that I I like if I that's the film that I think about most mm-hmm. from the book. Um, but I also, she directed me to uh, Robert Altman's Images. Yes. Which, um, yeah, such a wonderful, eerie film. And it explores that oft used horror concept of the doppelganger mm-hmm. um, in a way that's just quite atmospheric. Like, you know, full disclosure, my, I'm not a, a horror expert. That's not necessarily my... Mm-hmm. Um, specialist subject in film but the, the thing that I love in cinema and that I'm gra- I gravitate towards is, is, is these sort of like these atmospheres are, are, and these moods that are infused with so many different aspects mm-hmm. and um, those are the kinds of films that when I was reading um, House of Psychotic Women those mm-hmm. are the ones I'm like yeah I want to watch that more so than necessarily the like hardcore exploitation films. Yeah and I think you point out something really important to um, surface about the book actually Sophie and it's the fact that as much as it does center and decides and kind of you know creates the boundaries of the sort of film that she's talking throughout um, throughout the book there is so much gray lines between the considered uh, mainstream or the art house and the exploitation and the fully horror you know something like images or the or you know Robert Altman's um, sort of female 
quartet or I always forget whether it's three or four films, but there's images, there's three women, there's come back to the five and nine, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Um, like, you know, she talks a lot about La Ventura, the Antonioni film. Possession is both considered art house and horror. It is just plain weird, kind of sits in between. She brings in so many films that respond, that she responds to in, you know, similar ways that she sees these through lines with, you know, more hardcore exploitation fare, um, or kind of almost unfindable films. And I think it's really important the fact that she erases this clear separation because i find that a lot of uh genre spaces are very lim- self-limiting in that sense where they're like well this isn't horror enough because there's not a head being blown up or there's not someone being you know stabbed or something and she's finding horror themes and the experience of the of the terrific or the anxiety inducing in films that perhaps were not billed or sold as genre films yeah, I mean, she in that regard, she is the anti gatekeeper. Yes, you know, like that's what she is. She mm. she's very sort of uh, in a way democratizing mm. in terms of what can be included in the horror experience. It's not this thing like you know. I mean, when she talks, the, there's a whole section where she talks about Alfred Hitchcock's film Rebecca mm-hmm. and how she relates this to her experience of uh, feeling like she's haunted by the specter of ex-girlfriends, mm. you know, and, and then how this limits how she can feel close to her present, you know, boyfriend. And it's spoken about in such like accessible terms that, you know, you, you can find common ground with her, uh, along a, a variety of different titles. You can just tell that she's a cinephile, you know, mm. that's the all. That's really like the, the buck stops there with her. She's not trying to paint herself into a corner uh, with genre and like the details and well, it didn't have that trope. So it's not horror. It's just building this kind of landscape of what can feel unsettling and give you the heebie jeebies. That seems to be her only like requirement, you mm-hmm. know? And, and if you can relate to that, then you have like entry point with her. And, that, and that's really nice. It's also, it's a, it's another tick in the column of not positioning yourself in a sort of like lauded intellectual terms where you have to sort of justify your inclusion of something she's positioned herself perfectly to just like make choices based on vibes if vibe is correct (laughs) it can go in (laughs) and she said like not to keep banging on about the fact that I spoke to her earlier this morning I feel Mm. like I've probably made my point enough at this point but she (laughs) she kind of said like there is another book to be written potentially not by her where it is like kind of expanding out the psychotic woman canon even beyond the bounds of horror cinema I want to shout out to like like who I would just immediately put in like oh mate the the, like the single greatest actress to depict a woman coming undone beautifully like a dying star uh Jenna Rowlands and um, (laughs) I was hoping you were gonna bring up Jenna (laughs) Rowlands and you know and and um it's just an incredible line in love streams but she's on the phone to her estranged husband who wants, frankly, nothing more to do with her. And she just says, I'm almost not crazy anymore. Mm. And I feel like maybe that's like, that's the impulse that all these psychotic women are reaching towards and they're almost not crazy anymore. Um, I'm really glad Jenna Rowland's made it into this conversation <laughs> somehow. But uh, as we kind of start wrapping up this conversation, I wanted to, to ask you and please interpret this question as as openly as you wish kind of where do you see 
the influence of House of Psychotic Women, be that on, you know, films, be that on your own work, writing, podcasts, kind of, I don't know, festivals, kind of where do you see its its legacy 10 years on? Um, I can go first. Go if, ahead. If, if you don't mind, yeah. Um, well, I know for a fact that uh, the directors of The Untamed and Starry Eyes gave copies of the book to their lead actors, mm. um, their actresses to prepare for their roles. And so the book has been officially used as a toolkit in this way. And Kula has also said, uh, from what I've heard in interviews, that filmmakers have found the book useful to help them imagine themes and mm. motifs they want to actually create and develop. Mm. So it's been actually practically used as like a, <clears throat> excuse me, as a, as a mood board. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to kind of capture a mindset or uh, a mood mm-hmm. or something, you know, that has a little bit of dynamism to it, a bit of fluidity and ambivalence. Mm. It's not just one specific thing, you know, it's, it's, it's always sort of like moving. Um, and the book is really, it's like a hologram like that. It's, it's, it's such a shapeshifter and it's always kind of in flux. So I know that has been practically useful as an influence on, on, on others, but um, I see it as also kind of being part of a wider cultural trend Mm. and I don't I can't say for sure that I know this person has used um house of psychotic women in her in her own you know create creative practices but I I I think I I noticed like a similar trend there's a youtuber that I follow Mm -hmm. she's 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 quite big you know she's she's got a, a couple of million followers um her name is Anna Akana do you guys know her no Anna Akana well, I mean, yeah, she's interesting. She's worth checking out. She sort of, she writes like comedy sketches mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and she writes music. She's sort of like, she, she does a lot of stuff. But what's in, what I find where I, where I see that she does a very similar kind of work to Kirla is, um, she subjectivizes a lot of things. She had a very troubled past. She has a lot of family trauma. Um, you know, she had to deal with grief at a very young age. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But she incorporates those things very consciously, you know, in the work that she does, and she has a tendency to, um, like, drop these little bombshells, personal issues that she's struggling with, and they're still not resolved. She's still in therapy, so she kind of in. in um, I suppose like there are hues of, of what I'm seeing in House of Psychotic Women with Anna Akana. Like she, she plays with this notion of mad woman in a really clever way, very accessible. She's gone viral many times. Um, and I think that's really cool. And I, it must be difficult for her because she's obviously processing a lot of, you know, unmanageable things to some extent. But it's, it's, it's the fearlessness of continuing to show up to do this kind of work. And it's like a, it's being consistent with it. And I think that to me is the biggest influence of this book. She said before that she spent years developing this idea for the book. She didn't know initially how her voice was going to sound. She didn't even know really how it was going to be structured. Um, she said she was uh, influenced by a title called Pretty Girl in Crimson Rose by Sandy Balfour. 
um, which is like a work of personal reminiscence and a guide to solving crossword puzzles. And each chapter starts with a clue about the puzzle and uses personal anecdote and history and autobiography to solve it. Mm. So Kirla has relied on this technique to structure her own work. And she said when she started doing that, the writing was just more fluid and it just came out. She was more comfortable writing Mm. like that. And I think this is generally a bigger theme that we're experiencing in the culture where people feel they have more of a license to incorporate those um, kind of like difficult to bat away issues and actually say, you know what, I am, I, I'm actually going to use this as a, as a material in my work. I'm not just going to try and repress it because that's getting me nowhere. This is coming into the work. So I think that's the biggest influence. Yeah. I mean, I can't give quite a sort of comprehensive and sort of like gen- on point genre wise answer as Mary just did like that was incredible um and I don't know if he's seen the book but if he's read the book but I certainly thought about it when I was watching uh, Mark Cousins's documentary mm. I am Belfast yeah um because I feel like they're spiritually twinned he's like making sense of what it was like to grow up during the troubles using the cinema that he he watched at the time and what I think is really beautiful about what he does is the same thing that I think is beautiful and what Kayla does is she like like, but cinema and life are as real, as vivid of each other. Uh, you know, that they're not apologizing for taking solace and meaning from fiction. They're like, mm. th- these are equally meaningful forces in my life. And and that film has that really beautiful balance. And again, with the editing, I think editing is so important when you're working in a film like that, like, you know, like moving from real footage to film footage. And it's just, it, 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 it envelops you to the point that by the time you finish watching it, you, again, you, you feel like, cinema and 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 lived experience are on the same pegging Hmm. I think those are both very beautiful comparisons and I do wonder if Mark has read this book because his his work is a lot of you know how he experiences cinema and his various journeys so the other book that I thought about which I think I found at similar times as uh, I discovered Kirla's work was Martin Scorsese's A Personal Journey Through American Cinema and then the Italian variation A Personal Journey Through Italian Cinema um, which were I think the other way around there were documentaries that got got um, turned into published books and it's it's that fundamental thing that also needed the the horror bend is the really striking thing in that regard is that it's legitimizing the artistic validity of horror and exploitation cinema and the the female experience of this work as well because they are not uh as both of you kind of have mentioned at different points they were not considered as valuable a lens to experience his films from and those films themselves were not considered as valuable or as deep uh, or artistic to be kind of properly critically considered and and it like i know it personally just her work has been probably the most defining influence in my own work from every single possible angle on the curation side um for my work as a programmer and my thoughts on programming as a as as a practice anyway and most definitely on my vision and kind of the the sort of work that I've done through this through the final girls and in writing as well is just trying to trying to marry scholarship without it becoming pedantic or prescriptive 
um, for people, but rather coming from a place of both that is both empathetic and deeply personal. I'm trying to make it sound as cool as Kirla makes it sound. <laughs> yes, because that's a whole nother. Well, story. I think we should we should salute your new French extremity season, in which you played. <laughs> yes. You played many films that are in the book, including In My Skin. Yes, and I love that film. our shared favorite, Trouble Every Day. It's very true. Yeah, and uh, I should shout out the beautiful twinning of Sophie's Claire Denis season from a few years ago that also happened at the BFI, where I introduced Trouble Every Day, and then um, Sophie introduced Trouble Every Day at the New French Extremity season, which oh, was yeah. just amazing. The most wonderful <laughs> extreme exchange the BFI has ever seen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, before I let both of you go, I wanted to ask you, know, is there anything that you feel we haven't touched upon in this conversation that you wanted to bring up? I just, I just had a few more, um, mm-hmm. other texts that I think up again, like, go ahead. In, yeah. In the similar sort of wheelhouse. Mm. So in 2012 also came out uh, Sweet for Barbara Loden by yes. Natalie Legier, which mm-hmm. is very, very, very different but also like magically different to any other type of film writing in mm-hmm. how it explores Barbara, Barbara, the life of Barbara Loden, who most famously played Wanda um, herself, a woman who you could say might be so, somebody, I don't know, an unkind person might say a, a psychotic woman. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's just like such a, it's, ah, it's, so, it's sort of like gossamer light. And like somehow in this writing, it's so light and so delicious to read. It's, mm. it's infused with like a whole, a whole life. And also, with the author's uh, investigation of that life. So I, I would really recommend that book. And then another book that's been in, in, instructive to me uh, is, and I have it here, Olivia Lang's <gasps> The Lonely City. Oh, great shout, Sophie. I love that book. And uh, as you know from from your uh, enthusiastic reaction, it, the, I'm just going to spell it out for, for listeners. It's, yeah, it, it's kind of amazing. It's, it's, so she, Olivia Lang goes to New York on the strength of a love affair that immediately fizzles, mm-hmm. gets called off the moment she arrives, but she decides to stay. And while she's there, she researches New York-based artists who have depicted loneliness um, or been very lonely. And she, mm. she wends this very, very brilliant, fascinating exploration of their work into her own experience of being in New York and being very, very lonely. And um, beautiful book. Mm. Beautiful, oh, beautiful book. It is gorgeous. And I'd like to shout out kind of in that same vein, outside of horror, really, and more in the memoir side is, in general, the work of Annie Arnaud, who has just won the Nobel Prize for Literature. But the way that she, her books are often very, very short, very scanned. And uh, her nonfiction certainly deals a lot with her, with her life, but with memory and with the very act of writing memory. And... It is, I think her portrait of her father, uh, which is called A Man's Place, is probably one of the most affecting kind of attempts at, at portraying the life of a person who's obviously very close to her, but from a distance, a self-imposed distance, and trying to marry the emotional memory with the, with the very straight facts of a person's life, a person who never kind of had the, the consequence that her life has had with her, with her literary output, with, you know, all the multiple awards and the, the significance she holds in literature and in French and, and around the world. Um, and kind of trying to unpick her own, uh, sort of 
built-in disdain because of the life that she had built for herself and what she has achieved, kind of the disdain of, of the artistic disdain towards anyone who doesn't produce in that way. Um, I think all of her work is, is extraordinary, but that in particular I thought was so incredibly challenging just to herself even as a person and definitely as a writer. Um, I'm going to order that after this recording. <laughs> also, just to shout out that it, they played in Cannes the Super 8 Years. Yes. Which is like, uh, uh, yeah, like a, a, a film. Um, Written yeah, and co-directed by her. Mm. Yeah, I felt very, ra- I was rapidly uh, championing that film and was lucky enough to be able to program it for the now defunct Edinburgh Film Festival. Oh, God. <laughs> that's devastating news. I can't actually believe that's happened. Yeah, I am in a state of rage and shock. Um but not to end it on a downer yeah. <laughs> uh, because we've had such a beautiful conversation. Um, I just wanted to thank both of you for your thoughts and for having this chat with us together. Oh I feel gosh. like I've discovered new layers in a text that I already deeply loved. On the note yeah. of alchemy, I feel like this was a really good alchemy. I'm so happy. I'm so happy mm. this happened. I also, uh, I, I know I've already texted this to you, Sophie. I had no idea you were a fan of the book, and I'm really happy that I discovered that about you. <laughs> yep, love it. <laughs> um, and before I wrap up, for anyone who wants to discover more of your work, where can people uh, find more of your work online? Oh, I mean, do they have to? I don't know that I would recommend that they do. But if <laughs> wait for my book, it's going to be so good. Like just like in a year and a half. Um, but yeah, I do. I I I don't know. Like I'm not very good on Twitter. I like I'm my own worst enemy on Twitter. I should probably go private. Uh, I'm sure I've done some things I'm proud of. Jesus, Anna, help me out here. I'm drowning. You can find Sophie's beautiful <laughs> writing on film. Uh, a lot of it in Little White Lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes for um, you've written for Cosmopolitan, BBC Culture, yes, the BFI, Sight and Sound. Yes, you can find Sophie on Twitter at so far so good. So many places. Uh, and I've got a, my interview with Kira Jeunesse will be in IndieWire for Scream Queen Week. Oh, Do fabulous. I know when Scream Queen Week is? No. But it should be, I guess, close to Halloween. And there will also be essays on um, Pet Cemetery with an interview with Mary Lambert and about interviews with the cast members from Antichrist. So IndieWire for Scream Queen Week. Come get your goodness. Amazing. And what about yourself, Mary? Well, I've got a new uh, course lined up at the Freud Museum London. It is an online course, mm-hmm. so people can join uh, internationally. And it's on women in horror films. So it's the one that I teach every year for them around Halloween. It's actually going to be taking place on the 30th and 31st. Mm-hmm. All the details of that are on the Freud Museum website. Apart from that, I am um, a teaching fellow at the Global Center of Advanced Studies and I produce, obviously, podcast work on projections, podcasts, and evolution of horror. I also do produce exclusive content now on Patreon. And I know Anna's joined my Patreon. I'm absolutely honored to have you there. Thank you so much. Uh, you can find me there on patreon.com slash Mary Wild. And if you're on Twitter or on Instagram, my handle is the same on both. It's Psychstar. Excellent. And for everyone who listens to me say this every single week, you can find me at the now I realize very appropriately named uh, handle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna B. Demented. 
and <laughs> um, I will be oh, mostly living in the BFI South Bank during October, November, and December while the In Dreams Are Monster season, which I co-curated, uh, will be will be playing, and that will also take part all around the UK. So it's going to be horror month for three months for me. There you go. Amazing. Mm. Thank you both again so so very much. Thank you so much for having us. This was great. This is really good. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> glad to hear that. 